One of the best parts of the holiday season is that everyone celebrates in their own unique way. Some traditions have grown out of novelty, such as eating Kentucky Fried Chicken dinners for Christmas in Japan. Others date back centuries, like hiding your broom on Christmas Eve in Norway to prevent witches and evil spirits from stealing it to ride on. I'm Caitlin Phillips, and on this episode of The Oxford Comment, I'll be examining the history of holiday traditions and attempting to figure out why we continue to celebrate them, even the strange ones. But before we take a trip around the world, I asked colleagues in the Oxford University Press office in New York to tell us some of the holiday traditions they celebrate. So starting in high school, a group of friends would go see a very depressing, uh, not holiday movie, but just any movie, um, just to, you know, get in the spirit. But recently, for the past two years, we've gone and seen It's a Wonderful Life at the IFC Center in the West Village, um, which is very depressing, but it's also very uplifting. My family tradition is that once a year on Christmas Day, me and my family will go for a big walk in a nearby park just before lunch. And we'll normally leave everything cooking in the morning and then go on this big walk and so that we feel less guilty about indulging later. And also the food will still be cooking in that time. And then we will come back normally take some pictures together and we'll come back and eat our dinner. The person that I'm currently dating is Jewish and I have been celebrating Hanukkah with him um, for the past four years that we've been together and my mom who is also not Jewish um, really became interested in celebrating Hanukkah with the two of us even though she lives far away so every year my partner calls my mom and leaves her a message of the prayer that you say when you're lighting the menorah so that she can light it each night while she comes home from work because we're obviously not there in the room with her. Um, And on the first and the last night of Hanukkah, we'll actually all do it together on FaceTime and we'll light the menorah candles together. So even though we were not raised Jewish, my mom and myself and my family love to participate in lighting the menorah from the first night to the last night, even if we're not in the same place. So for my first Christmas, my mom gave my dad uh, a gift for me, which was a copy of The Night Before Christmas. And he read it to me before bed. And now every year uh, for the past 24 years, my dad has We'll sit down and he'll, with me and my brother, and he'll read the book that we know by heart, and he'll do all the voices, and we put on Christmas hats, um, and then afterwards we'll open up um, our first Christmas gift on Christmas Eve, and it'll be Christmas pajamas, and we'll all go to bed having eaten cookies in our Christmas pajamas, listening to that story. During the holiday season is the one time I will be in the kitchen baking with my sister, because I normally can't cook or bake. But it's the one time um, I'm there with my sister. It's a great bonding experience. And the fun part is that we love to go grocery shopping and we'll actually double up the recipes because I have the tendency to burn our first batch. So we'll have to make extra batches and double up the ingredients. And that's what we do. 
Okay, well, I'm Jewish, and when I was about eight years old, I heard that the thing for a lot of Jews to do on Christmas was the whole going to the movies and eating Chinese food, so I brought it up to my parents, and we started doing it then. But what I really like about doing it is I think it's a little stressful sometimes, like when you don't celebrate the holiday and there's nothing to do and everything is closed, so it's just a way to kind of get out and the open and be around a lot of other people and just to have a festive spirit even if it's not necessarily Christmas related. So every year on Christmas Eve, my mom gets a big pan out and she makes a plate of sandwiches and they're always, always, always Rubens. So if you're not familiar, this has, it's a grilled sandwich with corned beef, Swiss cheese, sauerkraut, Russian dressing with rye bread surrounding it. I hate every single one of those ingredients. I hate every single one, down to the bread. So every year, I always have a separate sandwich on the big tray of sandwiches that is just a grilled cheese. These holiday traditions can stir up feelings of nostalgia and spark interest in exploring one's ancestral past we start to wonder, where did these traditions come from? And how did these traditions spread and evolve? In an attempt to answer these questions, we spoke to the ghosts, or experts, of holidays past to help figure it out. Jerry Bowler, author of Christmas in the Crosshairs, 2,000 Years of Denouncing and Defending the World's Most Celebrated Holiday, is here to help examine the entire sweep of Christmas history. He provides a global scope of its influence in his book. Let's hear more from Jerry. Hi, I'm Jerry Bowler. I'm a Canadian historian, and uh, my specialty is the places where popular culture intersects with religion. So I've been studying Christmas, uh, social history of Christmas, for the past 25 years or so. I've uh, written a number of books on it, um, The World Encyclopedia of Christmas, Santa Claus, a Biography, and uh, the latest uh, was Christmas in the Crosshairs, which was about... 2,000 years of arguing about the world's most celebrated holiday. Can you give us some um, examples of holiday traditions from around the world? Holiday traditions are innumerable. Um, there are places where dates differ, for example. We tend to celebrate on um, December 25th. Uh, the Orthodox Church will celebrate it on January 7th. Uh, Ethiopian Church will celebrate it even later. Food varies all around the world. Uh, North America, well, we love to sit down to a turkey dinner. Uh, in Australia, they'll be eating uh, barbecue on the beach. In Japan, uh, they love a very sweet Christmas cake and Kentucky Fried Chicken. Eastern Europe, they will put a carp in their bathtub for a number of days before Christmas to clean it out, and uh, carp will be on the table for their Christmas dinner. Magical gift bringers are universal, but they're not always Santa Claus. Uh, Santa Claus uh, in North America, certainly, but he'll be called Father Christmas some places, uh, Père Noël in the French-speaking world. The Three Kings, the Magi, also bring gifts in the Spanish-speaking world. There are female gift bringers, uh, some of them very uh, benign and benevolent, like the Bafana in Italy. There's uh, some scary ones, like uh, the Central European Perkta the Disemboweler, who might uh, split you open or give you a gift, depending on how uh, she happens to be feeling at the time. 
I do love the mix of uh, horror and the holidays. There's something really kind of unnerving and yet it's so cold out. It's kind of nice to be also a little scared. <laughs> well, um, you have to remember that, that Christmas uh, develops in the pre-industrial world where there is no artificial light. The, the only light we have would come from uh, a fire or candles. And it's the darkest time of the year. So uh, European folklore is full of ogres and werewolves and witches, uh, all kinds of monsters that, that hate the idea of the birth of the baby Jesus and so rage furiously uh, against humanity. So we, we have all kinds of very, very scary stories. In many countries, uh, the gift bringer uh, himself or herself is scary. Uh, the uh, Scandinavian gift ringers were uh, very mischievous and uh, in, in animal shapes. The Finnish uh, Santa Claus is still called Yulapuki. He looks like Santa Claus, but he still retains the name of the Yule Goat, um, who would uh, knock you over as soon as look you in the eye. Well, and our concept of Santa in the red suit and sort of apple cheeks is, is somewhat new, too. Um, how have rituals across the world changed over time? Uh, change comes uh, for all kinds of reasons. For example, for the first thousand years of Christmas, gifts were um, not particularly given to children. They, they tended to be part of the, uh, the social contract up and down the social ladder from inferiors to superiors and down the ladder from superiors to their, their minor nobles or so on. Peasants would often have Christmas gifts of, of food and drink uh, sort of built into their feudal oaths, so the Lord had to give them hospitality at, at Christmas time. It's only around the year 1200 that we have some interesting changes with the, the appearance of the first magical gift bringer uh, and the invention of uh, St. Nicholas. Uh, St. Nicholas had been around for centuries, but uh, now he is uh, deemed to be the saint that brings uh, little gifts to children in early December, which is his saint's day. So for centuries, we have uh, St. Nicholas as the magical gift bringer. We have St. Nicholas fairs, uh, St. Nicholas uh, gingerbread cookies, and so on. And then in the 1500s, the Protestant Reformation comes in in Western Europe and abolishes the cult of saints. So out goes St. Nicholas. That leaves uh, parents in Protestant Europe with the problem of who brings the gifts on Christmas. So they invent an interesting kind of figure called the Christ child, uh, which isn't quite the baby Jesus. It, it'll be a, a young woman, probably dressed in, in white. Though she has replaced St. Nicholas, she lacks some of the things that St. Nicholas brought to the table, which was the ability to scare children into good behavior and the ability to carry large, heavy packs. The gift bringer, which is now called uh, the Christ child, or in France, Le Petit Noël, or in, in Germany, uh, Das Christkindl, now has uh, very scary helpers. Uh, furry, shaggy creatures that will, will carry uh, whips or chains to rattle at the kids or, or uh, baskets or bags to carry them away in. Um, almost always clothed in fur. And uh, you can tell from the names of these monsters that, that accompany uh, the Christ child that the name of Nicholas has just been transferred to them. So um, in, in German, for example, Peltznickel or Belsnickel, which means uh, Nicholas in furs, or Ruklaus, which means uh, rough Nicholas. And it is this shaggy, furry creature that's going to be one of the elements that eventually 
uh, turns in, into Santa Claus. So that's that's one of the reasons uh, things change. A huge religious uh, revolution. Then in in many countries in the 20th century, there'll be uh, political revolutions. Marxist revolutions will view uh, anything religious with uh, with great uh, distrust. So in, in the Chinese Communist Revolution, uh, Christmas is simply abolished. In uh, Nazi Germany, Christmas was too deeply embedded to abolish, so the Nazis tried to co-opt it to replace uh, worship of the baby Jesus with Christmas carols like Silent Night that, uh, that praise uh, Adolf Hitler. In the Soviet Union, they tried to shift the holiday festivities to the new year and to stage atheist demonstrations against people who go to church on Christmas Day. Or you have huge economic change, like the Industrial Revolution. Uh, when that comes to North America and, and Western Europe, there's a shift in Christmas festivities. Christmas festivities for a long time was all about food and drink, but now after the Industrial Revolution, the focus is on uh, manufactured gifts and toys for children. You can see traditions changing when children move out parents no longer celebrate necessarily in the same way as when they had kids around. And if the kids marry, they might marry into a family that has different Christmas traditions. So you end up with uh, family negotiations that, that produce new practices. Uh, for example, uh, what do you have for Christmas dinner? Or when do you open the presents? Or how long do kids have to stay in bed before they come down? And then you have uh, a lot of attempts by commercial interests and in in movies uh, to uh, invent new traditions, and those are almost always failures. So the only ones that uh, have really succeeded have been uh, the Chicago department store that invented Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Uh, so you mentioned symbols there a bit, and and you know we've lived so long with the Christmas tree and with Santa and with reindeer. Do you see a point where we get past those or, or beyond those in, in holiday uh, you know, symbols, or are those sort of always uh, going to be with us? And you did mention Rudolph, but um, there's Elf on the Shelf and you know, some of these other you know, supposed new traditions. Can you talk a little bit about those? An example of one that didn't succeed was, was Ivory Soap. Ivory Soap had a series of advertisements that tried to convince families that Santa would be dirty coming down the chimney, so it would be a kindness not to leave out uh, milk and cookies, but to leave out a basin of water and a bar of ivory soap. Um, movies, uh, dozens of new Christmas movies every year that um, amend the Santa Claus myth by killing him off or uh, giving him uh, a family or uh, giving him uh, labor problems with the elves. Uh, none of those have stuck, and, and I don't think they will. The two primary symbols of Christmas uh, the nativity scene and Santa Claus uh, have existed for so long because they're successful, because they do things that are good for the culture and for the family. So I don't think we're going to see much change in either of those. Uh, Christmas trees are interesting. They're, they're a rather new phenomenon in North America. Uh, they've been around in Europe since the 1500s, but uh, it came to North America really with German settlers and, and became popular only in the mid-1800s. But we've seen those go through a number of changes. They used to be small, sitting on the tabletop, and uh, then they were large, but uh, lit with candles. That was a, a fire hazard uh, disaster. So we had them replaced by natural gas. 
cast iron Christmas trees hooked up to the, the gas supply. Electric lights came in, everything got safer, then we went through the period of aluminum trees. There are a number of businesses that will rent you a Christmas tree and we'll take it back and then replant it. Things like the Christmas tree and the various kinds of ornaments that, that put on it are, are recent and frequent changes in fashion. The, the rise of charity, or not the rise of charity, but the rediscovery of Christmas charity in the 19th century uh, has become very big and, it, and is now uh, a part of family gift bringing. Yeah, it is nice to get reminded that getting uh, gifts is fun, but giving something uh, can sometimes be even more fun. Oh, I, I think so. The whole point of the religious meaning of Christmas is giving. The Santa Claus myth is itself a gift, because we have here a very peculiar situation where parents who could get the gratitude of children for all the uh, lavishing of gifts, parents deflected onto this mythical, magical creature, uh, Santa Claus, and provide the element of, of fantasy in the lives of children, of expectation, of a heightened sense of time. Even when kids find out the truth about Santa Claus, uh, they love to be included into the conspiracy. They love to become part of the adult clan uh, that now knows the truth and doesn't reveal it uh, too soon to the younger siblings. So your book is called Christmas in the Crosshairs. Can you talk a bit about uh, controversy surrounding uh, Christmas from you know, way back when, uh, up to a more modern uh, take on it, where we've kind of dubbed it the war on Christmas. Dig into some of the more controversial sides of Christmas. People have been arguing about Christmas even before there was a Christmas. The early church had disagreements about whether or not to celebrate the birthday of Jesus. Birthdays were not a Christian thing that belonged to the pagan world. Uh, they particularly honored uh, emperors, people who were oppressing Christianity. So it took uh, a couple centuries before Christians agreed, no, well, we have to talk about the birthday of Jesus, because there are people out there who believe that Jesus was always pure spirit, that he never had a human body. And so the church has to emphasize the very physical uh, human aspect of Jesus, and that means the birth in a particular place, a particular time. By the 200s, there, there's a desire to celebrate the birthday of Jesus. But the question then is, when do we do it? What time of year? A lot of people think incorrectly that December 25th was chosen because it was the time of the pagan holiday season. Most historians don't believe that anymore, and uh, they believe that for various uh, rather complicated calendar reasons that have to do with uh, very high theological analogies, uh, it, it ends up uh, on December 25th, uh, very close uh, to the midwinter season. So uh, Christians in, in the west of Europe, in Rome, and Gaul, Britain, uh, celebrated on December 25th, but the Eastern churches, uh, churches in uh, Alexandria or Jerusalem or Constantinople, use a different calculation based on a different calendar, and they, they want to emphasize January 6th. So there's arguments about that. So we have centuries of arguments about Christmas just as, as Christmas is being invented. And then the next big fight, which, which goes on even today, so it, it's lasted for about 1,700 years, is the fight uh, to keep non-Christian elements out of the celebration of uh, the nativity of Jesus. And, and that's a losing battle. But the church manages to keep 
some of the celebratory elements of uh, the non-Christian world out. Dancing in animal skins, for example, not part of Christmas, um, but uh, greenery is, and, and the same with uh, light and, and candles and gifts. These were all part of the calends of January or the Saturnalia Festival. There's been arguments for hundreds of years about uh, what kind of things can be harmlessly uh, acculturated and, and some things that, that have to be kept out. And then we have, in the 15 and 1600s, the whole argument about whether or not Christmas should be celebrated at all, coming from the Puritans, who want to have nothing to do with it. The holiday was not commanded by God, and so it's idolatry. It's, it's something produced by man. So that fight, well, it's still going on. Um, and I have a quick question for you. Have you ever researched a tradition that you then integrated into your own family's tradition? Or is there one that you think uh, would be fun for, for people to integrate into their family traditions? That's a really good, good question. Um, I've done a fair bit of traveling, and everywhere I go, I try to pick up something new about Christmas. So a couple things that, that I've picked up are um, a traditional Christmas Eve French-Canadian uh, meat pie uh, called tortier. Uh For French-Canadians, that, that's what they tend to eat in the feast they call the Réveillon, uh, which happens after uh, midnight mass on Christmas Eve. But I'm, I'm not going to stay up that late, so we have it for Christmas Eve dinner. Also, though I'm, I come from a Protestant background and really never had a nativity scene, we, we've gotten pretty big on nativity scenes. I, I collect them uh, from around the world, um, they're they're wonderful, and I, I try and make sure I've, I've got a, a wide uh, selection. Uh, when I went to Naples, uh, I, I was just in heaven because they have an entire street populated only by stores that sell nativity scene figures. So you can populate an entire village or city with little three or three and a half inch uh, creatures that uh, take up much of my living room at Christmas time. Oh, that sounds lovely. <laughs> Well, Jerry, thank you for joining us. Uh, it was quite a pleasure speaking with you. Always a pleasure to talk about Christmas. We wanted to thank our featured guest, Jerry Buller, author of Christmas in the Crosshairs, for contributing to this episode on the history of holiday traditions. As always, we would like to thank the cast and crew of the Oxford Comment. Be sure to follow Oxford Academic on Facebook and Twitter to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Oxford Comment on Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. On behalf of the Oxford Comment, we would like to wish you a happy holiday season. We'll be back in 2019 with even more episodes of the Oxford Comment. I'm Caitlin Phillips. Thank you for listening. <laughs>